0: The title of this evening's talk is The Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is indeed the, the most fundamental teaching of the Buddha. And I was intrigued when I realized that I've never given a talk on this topic. And and I know why. You know, I, I really have a reluctance to go into these topics that are lists of things. And any of you who've been so looking into the Buddhist literature is going to find that there's all kinds of lists: five of this, seven of that, eight of this, four of that, many fours too. And and it, it it sort of becomes kind of routine, tedious. Uh, and what's next? And what's next? Going from one item to another item. Uh, this in no way is a criticism of the Buddha's teaching, but uh, of uh, how it's <coughs> one, one tends to take it, you know. Particularly if one has been um, involved with regular teaching which can get so tedious and so uh, dull. Now the Buddha had very good reasons for these lists. The main one being that in his times the teachings were not written down. Not even by hand. They were memorized. And, yes, it does help to have a list to be able to memorize the topic. Go from this item to that item to that item. But the drawback, to put it in better terms than I did before, the drawback, the potential drawback of the lists is that focusing on each item we may miss the organic integrity of the teachings. An integrity there is indeed. So today, while well, going down the list of the Four Noble Truths and and within the Four Noble Truths is an even longer list, the Noble Eightfold Path. Well going down these lists what I'm going to do is to try to convey the integrity of the teaching. In other words, not just look at the th- threads of the fabric, but of fabric at the fabric itself. Okay. Let's look into start with the first three truths. The first noble truth can be stated by saying there is suffering. The Buddha used the word dukkha in his language and dukkha has been translated appropriately, I think, as suffering also can be translated as unsatisfactoriness. There is unsatisfactory. That's to say, very often, there is a sense that things are not as we'd like them to be. Hmm? Familiar, isn't it? And, And this is interesting, to put it this way, because it implies two things. One, there's a problem with the things. But two, there's a problem with our wishes about the things. Say, it's raining, or perhaps on Sunday it's going to be raining, as we were told. The problem is that we expect it not to be raining. Our brain can also be a problem, true. But the main problem, has to do with our expectations. The second truth, th- this is the first truth, then. Things are not often enough as we'd like them to be. The second truth takes off from, from our wishes about them and says the origin of the unsatisfactoriness Is precisely this wanting things to be in a certain way. This craving for this or that, and and when we get it the clinging to this or that, that we got the way we wanted it. Implied in this, the flip side of that is the pushing away of that which we don't want. We bring to us which we want, we push away that which we don't want. An implicit in these two is the wanter. If you want something, there has to be someone to do the wanting. If you cling to something, there has to be somebody to do the clinger, the clinging namely the Klinger. So, that's the origin of all the unpleasantness, really, around the way things are. The third novel truth follows really automatically from the second. It says, the end of suffering is the end of clinging. The end of craving. The end of wanting things to be in a certain way. Which also implies, is the end of the clinger, of the wanter. The end of the I that gets they are between us and and life. So, the Buddha listed these three truths in sequence and indeed, as I said before, makes it easier to remember, easier to pass them on to others and to comprehend intellectually it's, it's not unlike what medicine medical arts do with illness you need to define the symptoms give a diagnosis propose a medication what to do about it. But if we want to understand the illness fully we, we've got to see it in itself as a, as a whole condition. Same with these three truths that I've gone over. They are all three different aspects of the same affliction. We see one truth, we see them all. That the Buddha was very explicit about. Here's what he says he addresses his, what is called bhikkhus, the monks. He says, Dikus, one who sees suffering also sees the origin of suffering, also sees the cessation of suffering, also sees the way leading to the cessation of suffering. See them? See one? See them all. Here he's listing the fourth truth as well, which is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This four truth is also known under the name of the Noble Eightfold Path. There are eight folds, or if you wish, eight lanes on this path, eight aspects of this path to come to the end of suffering to free ourselves from this clinging and craving or pushing away and never being satisfied now before I go into this longer list of eight items to to make things a little easier, let me look at the groupings there's three sets among the eight items the first set is the wisdom set so one important aspect of this way of overcoming suffering is wisdom. The second aspect is morality, and the third aspect is practice. Now, within these groups, let me just list at least the various aspects. The wisdom set comprises or covers both. Right understanding and right intention. Wisdom is composed then of understanding and intention. The morality set comprises right speech, right action, and right livelihood. I'll go into this in a little more detail in a moment. And the third set, the practice group, comprises right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. Before I go into each one of these in various ways, let me just clarify what's meant by right. Right does not imply righteousness is not right as contrasted with wrong is not correct as counterposed to incorrect is not approved as contrasted with disapproved in so far as rules of society are concerned. It's not about being good. Something about, it's about something far more significant. Right means, and perhaps that would be a better translation as uh, Stephen Batchelor has uh, suggested, and I go along with that 100%. Right means appropriate, right means skillful, right means whatever would be useful under the circumstances to heal, to keep healthy, to end suffering. So it's a very pragmatic but very true definition of right. Now, here's my quandary. How, how to go into all these eight things and, and make sense? You know. What I'm going to do is to make sense by showing the interaction of these various, these eight aspects of the path. Let me start with the wisdom group, which includes right understanding and right intention. There is no doubt in my mind that intentions color our understanding. There is no such thing as an understanding that is impervious to intention. The, very usually, almost automatically our intentions are devoted are, are geared to satisfy the whims of the eye, the whims of the ego I want this, that can become paramount and when we are in that attitude, which is the the most basic one that, that we learn throughout our lives, the demands of the ego filter our understanding. We get a, an incredibly distorted picture of reality Say I have a fact, fight with Raquel, which, which happens, you know the fight with Raquel I mean, it's obvious that she's wrong <laughs> It may, may take me a little while to find out why she is wrong and I am right, but it's a bit obvious. <laughs> <laughs> At least, speaking from this, uh, you know, high place. <laughs> Vice versa. Just this understanding. Oh, sorry. Misguided intentions color our understanding. Skillful intentions, too, can color our understanding, can influence our understanding. Say, I have a fight with Raquel. If if my intention is peace, then the understanding is to find out what hurt her and to go beyond that. It happens. True. It's an understanding that permits us to go beyond suffering, to put an end to suffering. Not just the postponement of suffering, as it's often to but really come and and, and see things as they are without filtering that which is inconvenient, particularly which the eye finds inconvenient. At a different level, the, the Buddha has made quite clear his... determination that indeed intentions do affect his understanding of the teachings. Listen to this. Again from the scriptures. He says, The things I have directly known but have not taught you are numerous while the things I have taught you are few. And why? Have I not taught this many things? Because they are unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of the holy life and do not lead to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment. Therefore, I have not taught them. In other words, the intention that nourishes the understanding is the end of suffering, is that which is useful. This may not be according to the precise code of science. But and I was a scientist, so you know as I was a scientist, I would say, hey, I feel uncomfortable with that. I know better now. And what because, because as monks, huh, have I taught? I have taught, this is suffering. I have taught, this is the origin of suffering. I have taught. This is the cessation of suffering. I have taught, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And why, because have I taught this? Because it is beneficial, relevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and leads to dispassion, cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment. Just as intention colors understanding, understanding indeed colors intentions too. I was uh, aiming at that just a moment ago in exploring the role of the eye, of the ego, in shaping our intention. Now, if if we let this connection between intention and understanding really, really not just stay as an intellectual understanding but seep d- deep down to what I could call the marrow of our bones, our guts then we come to realize that the I offers us a pretty raw deal that has nothing to do with happiness. It's just a mirage of happiness. It, it ends up creating more suffering than anything else. And, and when this understanding really goes deep down in the in the l- lower substrata sort of, of our mind and body, then, then, our intentions get get washed, get cleaned, get pure. It's like a a miracle detergent, as they call it now. It's a miracle wash detergent of our intentions. So, so much for the wisdom group. The morality group. Morality group has right speech, that is appropriate speech, right action, appropriate action, right livelihood or appropriate livelihood. Um, really, live, right livelihood in, in my mind can very well be part of right action for some reason, historic reasons. The Buddha made it into a different uh, uh, item in the his list, but uh, it's part of action. It means no, the way of making a living should be appropriate, should not contradict our principles. Now, the teachings in this morality area group, It's important to remember that tre- teachings emphasize morality, that is, moral behavior, both in speech and action, not in terms of what's proper, correct, socially accepted, but as putting into practice, as implementation of wisdom, that is, of understanding and intention. An example, consider a student who is given an assignment to write an essay in school, high school, college, wherever. And um, he or she decides to do it it the easy way and goes to the internet and pilfers uh, some kind of essay. There's plenty of materials floating around there hard to detect. Of course, he'd be breaking the code of conduct in the school that he's studying and so on, but maybe he can get away with that, he or she. But that's not the more important part. The more important part of doing that is that in pilfering this uh, essay, He's undermining his own moral integrity. This, in a parenthesis, brings us to what I call the five precepts that uh, those of you who come to retreats are probably used to hear about them. In retreats like this, uh, residential retreats, we try to remind uh, all of you and ourselves to try to keep up with the so-called five precepts, which are no killing, meaning particularly, primarily, of course, no killing of insect bugs or whatever, also implies eating vegetarian as we do here. No stealing, which in the context of a retreat is unlikely that any of you is going to be stealing from anybody else. But it's also about not stealing from the earth. And uh, the willingness of the sisters here, intent of the sisters here to uh, recycle everything they can is is part of that. The third precept is right speech in general and in particular in a retreat like this as uh, I mentioned at the beginning is keeping the silence, keeping the noble silence, except in the circumstances we are invited to speak. Nothing wrong with speech itself, simply we need to create space of quietude within ourselves. The fourth is no sexual misconduct in the general sense, and in the context of a retreat like this, no sexual activity, And that's, again, not uh, saying anything wrong with sexual activity like there's nothing wrong with speech, simply that we create a space of silence of that activity during the weekend. And finally, no intoxicants. Obvious reasons. No alcohol, no drugs uh, that uh, drug your mind, and, as I was saying, these precepts are surely conducive to creating a good atmosphere for practice for everybody else, but just as important is that the effect that practicing these precepts has on our own mind. Failure to abide by those precepts amounts to sabotaging ourselves. Very clearly. Right behavior then makes it possible for our mind to disentangle from the tangle in which misbehavior gets us. Like the student I mentioned who pilfers uh, his uh, assignment from the internet. The tangle that he gets into is very significant. He may try to ignore it, but it's very significant. How can anybody who goes into that behavior remain whole in his or her mind and, and exercise wisdom you, you lose it how do I know? well I haven't done that with the internet but I've done similar things very small things perhaps but I've done similar things didn't do it through the internet because uh, I was too old by then and vice versa a student who maybe does this misguided action and pilfers an assay from the internet but then realizes the damage that he's done to himself. And and is willing to to spend time opening up to that reevaluation of where he stands. He learns from that. He she learns from that. His mind gets purified. And I again can say that has happened to me too. The Buddha, again, is quite clear on the fact that the mind is susceptible to being purified. And how is one made pure in three ways by bodily action? there is a case where a certain person abandoning the taking of life, abstaining from taking life, he dwells with his rod laid down, his knife laid down, scrupulous, merciful, compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. Abandoning the taking of what's not given. See, somebody who stole at one time and then gives up doing it. He abstains from taking th- that which is not given. He does not take in the manner of a thief things in a village or a wilderness that belongs to other, but belong to others and have not been given by them. Abandoning sexual misconduct, he abstains from sexual misconduct. This is how One is made pure by bodily action. And he says very similar things about being made pure by appropriate speech. let me see if, say a few words about the practice group. The practice group has to do with meditation practice. It includes right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. For monastics the practice is primarily very formal. For us, it depends. Some of us may go to long retreats and do a lot of formal practice, but uh, most of us, including myself, uh, are most of the time in the midst of life. And this is our practice. It's So, practice applies to both, the formal and not formal. It's it's true that formal practice is important because it does give us a taste of what's possible by practice. Formal practice becomes an arena where we can explore, explore different ways, new ways, of relating with our lives. Both with regards to wisdom and with regards to morality. Say we focus on the breath, which most of us do. Make that a primary focus of attention. Then there's a number of possibilities that we need to So become acquainted with? Do we let this sense of I that sometimes emerges hijack our practice? Do we become judgmental of ourselves? I'm no good meditator, whatever. Of others? Why is she making all that noise? Of our breath? I don't like this breath. Or do we open up to things as they are? For for all this and, and many other explorations the three aspects of practice are very important. It's effort, concentration, and mindfulness. And in a way you can see them sequential. In order to start the practice most of us have to put in some effort even the effort of coming here to the retreat and then the effort of uh, sitting sometimes comfortably sometimes not so comfortably but more importantly is the effort to focus the mind say on the breath keep the mind focused on the breath or whatever that requires some effort And and we do that generally, try to make the focus very narrow, very specific. So the first step is effort, the second the concentration of the focus. Once we've got the mind concentrated, cohesive, willing and able to focus, then we open the focus, we get a wider focus, so other things can come into the field of attention. And that's where we become mindful of all the things that do come into the field of attention. What is right effort? What is right concentration? And what is right mindfulness? Buddha has repeatedly compared this process, particularly effort, with the tuning of a string instrument. If the string is too tight, you get a screeching sound. it's not what you want. If it's too loose, you get some other odd sound or no sound at all the tension has to be right appropriate and here again the interaction between these three aspects of the practice is what allows us to tune the instrument effort is attention but we listen in not just to the concentration but to the ability to open up to mindfulness and when we get that we know that the tension in the string is the right note. The tension in the string gives us the right note. The tension in the effort gives us the right mindfulness. Mindfulness. So what I've done throughout this talk perhaps a little rambling because of all this long list of things but what I've tried to do is to emphasize the interaction between all these aspects the fabric of the practice I would say just to bring up Useful metaphor. Learning to open up to the interplay of all these eight factors of the, and the other three truths is a little bit like learning to walk, or even to dance. You know, take a t- toddler. That just begins to attempt to take the first step or two. He he, may focus very much on this particular movement, this particular stroke, this particular step, one thing at a time. But when the thing gets going really All the movements of each part of our body become integrated. And it's that integrated that makes it work. And just like dancing too, more complicated. But I remember when uh, as a youngster, teenager, whatever, I began to try to learn to dance, uh, the tango of course, in Argentina. <laughs> and, and I was so intent on in taking each step perfectly, you know, impeccably. And of course I, I lost it. It, it. it took me a long time to relax and flow with the dance. even if we may not be meticulously correct in each step we have to join the flow and the same indeed is what happens with the implementation of the four noble truths including the, the fourth namely the noble eightfold path if we let the ego take over, as it did when I was trying to dance perfectly, you know, take over and, and insist that each step of each action be impeccable, perfect, that my meditation be better than maybe anybody else in this room and so on, whatever, or well, at least better than my meditation yesterday. Uh, we're not going to, to be able to articulate anything. It's not going to flow. We need to trust in our ability to join in the dance of life. Of inner life, of course. And, and drop any misgivings about presumed inadequacy, presumed imperfections, in our practice. So, we need to allow ourselves to be fully present for this flowing dance of life. Wisely, harmoniously, and mindfully. Letting, letting awareness be our guide and our ally. Let's sit for a few moments in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.